Okay, uh, I want to welcome everyone to today's Meet the Scholar session. Uh, today, I am delighted and excited to be the one who gets to talk to Marvin Lieberman, who gets to lead the conversation. Um, you know, for those of you who don't know this, I, I, I don't know that we've ever said this, I've never said this, but, you know, we um, take turns, and I'm super lucky to get to do Marvin, but we take turns as the elected members, EC members, and officers. Um, that's how we actually interview some of the Meet the Scholars. So, as I said today, I'm super excited to interview Marvin Lieberman. I actually have a history with Marvin, and so uh, I should disclose the fact that Marvin was on my dissertation committee, so I feel like I know Marvin fairly well, but one of the things that is exciting about these Meet the Scholar sessions is I think we always learn something about people that we didn't know before. And so I've actually already learned a couple of things from Marvin, um, just in going back and forth with him on a couple of things that I wanted to clarify with him. And so I hope the rest of you also learn more things about Marvin through this Meet the Scholar session. Okay, so for those of you who don't know me, I am Heather Berry. Um, I am the division chair elect this year at the STR division. Um, and uh, I am going to control the time for the first 45 minutes, 45 minutes to an hour. Um, I will ask Marvin questions, but if you have questions that you would like Marvin to address, please use the chat function. And after I'm done asking questions, I'll then look at the chat and bring in your questions. Okay, so let me give you a little bit of background on Marvin. So next slide, you can see the next slide. Yes, perfect, thank you. Okay, so Marvin is the uh, is a chaired professor at UCLA in the Anderson School. He's been at UCLA since 1990. Uh, prior to his appointment at UCLA, he was an assistant professor at Stanford. Marvin has his doctoral and his undergraduate degrees uh, from Harvard, uh, studying economics. He is currently the senior associate dean and the director of the doctoral program at the Anderson School at UCLA. He's also the chair of the strategy area. So we'll talk a little bit about maybe uh, overdoing it on service activities. Um, for So I've known Marvin a long time. I've read several of his papers from his PhD seminar, um, kind of looking at him broadly, I would define his research areas sort of on, on a broad level as including, you know, competitive strategy, um, industrial economics, uh, you know, you've done some operations management, um, you know, some of his papers cover topics such as first mover advantages, uh, learning by doing, imitation, uh, both business and market entry and exit, value appropriation and productivity, and uh, performance comparisons. He currently has uh, lots of publications in several different types of journals. Um, he's got over 14,000 Google Scholar citations. His, one of his early papers um, that many people probably know for some of her advantages uh, was awarded the 1996 Best Paper Prize by SMS. And he has been a mentor to many doctoral students at UCLA. So I did not include myself on this list because he was not a chair or a co-chair. Um, this list is uh, on here is, is just people where he was actually the chair of the co-chair. So this is pretty impressive over the last 20 years. If you uh, know some of these people and are familiar with their work, um, you know, I think Marvin has been a fantastic mentor and I think all of these people would, would definitely uh, chime in and agree with that. All right, what I have on here is that he is a fellow of the SMS Strategic Management. Uh, he's been a fellow since 2011. 
Um, he currently serves as the Media Innovations Co-Editor, and so we'll also talk a little bit about that. Okay, I'm going to stop sharing my screen. All right, so that Martin and I can have a little bit more of a conversation and we can actually see all the other people. I can all see all the other people. <laughs> um, but now that I've stopped sharing my screen, I'm super excited to see several people in here who are co-authors of Marvin's. Um, and so I definitely think that we'll need to leave some time for questions at the end so that uh, people besides myself can actually ask interesting questions to Marvin. Okay, so Marvin, we want to get to know you. The Meet the Scholar session, um, the way I view this is to learn about your background, kind of how it is that you got into this profession, um, learn some interesting things about you that we may not otherwise know. And so the questions that I'm gonna ask you are gonna ask about your background, you know, ask about some of your research and your mentoring and you know, some of the, the service that you've been doing. So let's just start with the way we always do, kind of how it is that you ultimately came about to being a professor, being the person that you are, the person that we know. Um, I know that you have some interesting background in actually being a budding entrepreneur in high school. And so if you could talk a little bit about your high school kind of experiences, which I think had an impact on, on leading you to where you are, but if you could talk a little bit about your company that you co-founded, um, Astro Communications, I think that that would be interesting to all of us, actually. Sure, I can do all that. You can hear me okay? Yes. Yeah. So um, first of all, you know, Heather, thank you so much for, for leading this. And uh, thanks to all the leadership of the STR division, because you've all done a phenomenal job of, of uh, creating these community building activities and, and uh, interviews during the pandemic. It's been wonderful. Uh, and, and thanks to all of you who are out there uh, listening in on this session. I can't see who's here, but um, you know, maybe I'll hear from some people in the, in the uh, in the discussion. Um, so you, you raised a bunch of questions about my upbringing and my little company and, uh, and high school. Um, so, and one reason to go back to high school is that I think that was the biggest pivot in my career. Uh, I mean, a lot of people pivot later, um, but I was on track to being a, how should I put it, a you know, sort of science and engineering nerd of some sort. Uh, you know, I, most people on the call don't remember the days of Sputnik, but that's when I grew up. You know, the Soviets uh, put a, a you know, satellite in space and our rocket blew up on the launch pad and it galvanized this American response to beef up science and engineering. And so this all seemed very natural and, and even the, you know, the interest in rockets, which, which I had at the time, was, was kind of uh, very much in the air at that, at that point. Uh, so I was, you know, I was on the science and engineering track, and uh, I, I think to me, early on, I wanted to, I've always been curious, so I wanted to understand my world. So, you know, these basic questions when you're young, I think, are largely about science. You know, why is the sky blue? You know, what's the difference between solids, liquids, and gases, and so on? Um, and so I, um, you know, in high school, after my sophomore year, um, I came out, the National Science Foundation at that time had a program across the country for high school students. I came to USC. It's, it's hard for me to believe that I'm here out in California at this point, because uh, when I came to USC, California was such a very strange 
uh, a sort of an interesting place for sure. Um, so I did, you know, electron microscopy of thin metal films. And then the next summer in Carnegie Mellon, I did Mossbauer effect spectroscopy of phase transformations with tool steel. Um, and then I, at this point, decided that, well, wait a minute, you know, going down this path in science and engineering is just, just getting more and more specialized. You're able to, to ask interesting questions, but they're no longer sort of the broad kinds of questions. They're much more narrow questions. Um, and around this time, I was, you know, in this rocketry club, and I had a, a friend in the club um, who was an MIT graduate who had designed a radio telemetry transmitter uh, that you could fly in model rockets. For example, you could, you could instrument a mouse and monitor the mouse's heartbeat rate and breathing rate. You know, the mouse would get very excited to take off and so on. A live mouse, live a mouse. Live like mouse. we're all thinking like mouse, click the mouse. Nope. Yeah, right, it was alive. Well, you know, the, the hope <laughs> well, was that the mouse would stay alive for the whole, the whole thing. Well, but you'd know with all the sensors, yeah. right? <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, I remember being bitten by a mouse that was just so excited <laughs> by this whole process. That, you know, it was hard to get them in the capsule. So, so anyway, so... <laughs> so I'm picturing uh, you trying to put a mouse in a capsule now. Okay. Right. Um, you know, at, at this point, is you know why why would why would people buy this? So 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 I with with this this partner, um, he he had published the the design of this transmitter, and and there were these modules that you could use to 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 monitor the mouse or to test the acceleration or temperature things like that. And so I said to him, um, how about if the two of us got together and we formed a company to sell these transmitters? And he, he, he was certainly interested, and so we did this. Um, that was- It's kind of amazing in high school for you to say, let's form a company and sell these, right? I mean, that's like, that's not just nerdy boy. I mean, you know, I have two nerdy boys. I've seen nerdy boys. They're not starting a company. Right, so, so, so another thing that was happening was that to me, you know, what was really interesting was no longer these scientific questions because you know, by the time you're in high school, you've got a, a pretty good basic understanding of these phenomena. And of course, you could go deeper and deeper into any of those directions. Um, but that was interesting to me less and less. Um, but I could see that, you know, there was, there was business um, and, and all this commerce was, was quite fascinating. Um, and so I think this was influencing me as well, that um, so, so, I mean, having the company and the interest in business, they kind of co-evolved at this time. Um, so, um, anyway, so, so we sold, you know, many hundreds of these modules. I mean, at the time I had a paper route and so this paid a lot better than my paper route and it was a lot more interesting. So I, I gave up my paper. I was a terrible paper boy. Um, and I can see, and I can see, yeah. I didn't, I didn't, I got fewer tips than anybody. <laughs> Um, but I was, I was pretty good at this little company, uh, which was fun and interesting. And, um, oh, one little tidbit, um, we, we dominated our, our market space. Um, so we had, um, so, so, so the Estes Industries came in, uh, actually they persisted. Um, I'm not sure how well they did. There's another company called, uh, MITS, Micro Instrumentation and Telemetry Systems. Uh, which was a competitor for a while. Uh, then they decided that either they couldn't compete with us, we were so 
you know, effective and powerful, or more likely they realized that this little niche, you know, was just not something that would support, a, you know, this, this was actually somebody who was trying to support a family on this kind of thing. Um, so, so he, Morris Mims, exited, um, and shortly thereafter uh, came up with something called the Altair 8000 personal computer. Um, and so those of you who know, um, you know, computer industry history know that um, Bill Gates and Steve Ballmer, uh, Bill Gates dropped out um, and started this company called Microsoft, which made software for the MITS computer. So that was the beginning of Microsoft. So in some small way, I, you know, you could say that the, 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 the great competitive strength of my company led to the, you know, the founding ultimately of, of of the first personal computer firm in Microsoft, but that's all about entry and exit in different that, markets, right? Is, it's... Right. So, so, so you can see <laughs> this is this is all becoming, um, you know, it, it's, you know, it, it, it's certainly taking over um, for me in terms of my interests, um, and so, I mean, another formative thing at the same time. So, so I got to be honest. I think you could bring back the. Astro communication stuff now with all the SpaceX stuff that's going on. There's a whole crop of nerdy boys who right, right. Well, now, now it's you know it's become really there's an outlet you know if if to, to be honest if I had been interested in biology, I mean you know I and I had persisted with that. I mean that's that is the science that has just exploded and been so incredibly transformational in recent decades. Um, I mean, there's certainly, you know, physics, chemistry um, were, were, were evolving, but biology, which didn't interest me, to be honest, um, at the time so much, um, I mean, that would have been the place to be. Um, but that's not where I was going. And um, so anyway, I, you know, I, I just started to become much more interested in, in, in business and, um, you know, but I, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I didn't have, I didn't come from an academic family or anything. Um, you know, my father was an, an engineer. And so that sort of seemed like a natural thing to do. Um, and then the, the other really, you know, pivotal experience I had in, in high school, I think in terms of career was meeting Herb Simon. And this, you know, we chatted a little bit about this. Um, so, so, so when I was at USC, I, over the summer, I wrote a program that composed music. And when I came back to Pittsburgh, uh, I joined this Explorers Club, um, which was basically, a, a, you know, I think about a dozen, you know, high school kids, you know, using computer time on the PDP computer that Carnegie Mellon had. Um, <laughs> you know whether whether this was really a productive thing or not. I'll I'll leave others to to decide. Um, but anyway, there was a new head of the computer center who discovered that there were these high school kids uh, who were wasting all this precious computer time, and so he closed all our accounts. Um, so I was assigned the job of of trying to get computer time for our explorer stuff, and there was a a graduate student who was the advisor for us. And he made appointments with two people, uh, two faculty at Carnegie Mellon. One was the guy who was the head of the computer center. Uh, and the other was this, this person named Herbert Simon. Um, so I remember going in first to, to see the head of the computer center who 
who basically kicked me and the graduate student out of his office. He said, you know, no, you know, you're not, I'm not giving you computer time. Uh, so, so that was pretty discouraging that remember the doctor students saying, well, you know, Herb Simon is a very different sort of person. Um, and so anyway, so, so, so the next meeting was with Herb Simon. Um, and I go, I mean, I'm ushered in and um, I, you know, I, I'm not quite sure what to say, um, but, um, you know, I, I said, you know, Professor Simon, I've, you know, I've written this program that composes music and I don't know, I just burst out, you know, and I can even sing it for you. So, so, so the first thing I did was to start singing these melodies that had been written by my little program. You know, I had basically programmed in certain kinds of patterns uh, that, that I had picked up from a book that I had read on, on pattern and music. So he was, he was very, you know. Could you give us an example? You really want me to sing it? No, I don't. I don't. Go ahead. <laughs> I mean, if you'd like to. I've never heard your singing voice, and so I'm unclear. Oh, terrible. I'm Anyway, that was... Now this is all recorded. It is recorded for life. And I'm embarrassed forever. Okay. But, but Herb Simon, you know, he, he was, he smiled at least. Um, and, and he invited me in um, and he w said, you know, hang, wait a minute. He went in the back, he got two papers he had written on patterns in music. I mean, Simon was just a polymath and he was just extraordinary. Um, and we sat there for, it must've been an hour. I mean, it, it, was, it was perhaps the most extraordinary conversation I've had in my life. Um, and, you know, at first we were talking about patterns of music, which is something that I had thought about. So I was kind of, I don't know, if, I wouldn't say I was an equal of his, but at least I could, you know, <laughs> say. You could hold a tune, yeah. Somewhat intelligent, <laughs> right. And then, um, and then we talked, I, I can't remember what all we talked about. Um, you know, and at the end, he said, don't worry, you'll get your computer time. And he invited me to come see him again. Um, so... Um, anyway, I, I rushed to the library. I, I knew that, you know, the Professor Simon was a very, you know, prominent academic. And I, so I went to the library and I looked for his work in journals. And I discovered that I just couldn't understand a word of it. <laughs> it was just, it was all, you know, all this abstract work about organizations, essentially. And I was not, at that time, I was not operating on that level at all. Um, the other thing that impressed me was that Professor Simon, who was such a kind and gentle uncle with me, could be absolutely vicious in dealing with his critics. <laughs> there was clearly another side to Herbert Simon that, that I wasn't seeing. Uh, but, but anyway, so, so he invited me to come in. And so I would, every month or two, I'd, I'd go in and chat with him. And, um, you know, he gave me books. This was... Um, Wow, this is in 19, early 19, like 1971, so 50 years ago. He gave me books on climate change, the Club of Rome report he had me read. I mean, it was just, um, so, and, and I talked with him, I said, Professor Simon, you know, I, I'm not really sure what I want to do with my life. You know, what do I want to major in, in college? Um, you know, I've been on the science and engineering track, and he said, well, you know, given our conversations, you might think about majoring in economics. Um, 
And I said, well, you're, you know, you're, you're a psychologist. Um, and he said, yeah, you know, maybe psychology, but, but economics seems to fit your interests. Um, well, so he's so, very, very, I mean, he sounds like a fantastic mentor for you. Right. He was, it was just, I mean, th these were, th to be honest, to this day, um, you know, those meetings with Herb Simon are kind of the model of how I feel one should deal with visitors. You know, you know, some, you know, the contrast between being kicked out of the office of the, the, the head of the computer center, um, who really didn't even hear me out. Um, and then Herb Simon, who had the patience to spend an hour and then more with a high school kid. I mean, it was just, um, you know, it was just, it was just fantastic. Um, so anyway, so, so I ended up being a, a um, you know, an economics major in college. This was a, a kind of a shock to my parents because they, they knew what, you know, what an engineer could, did or a scientist, but they had no idea what, what you could do as an economist. And then one of their friends told them that I could get a good job as a stockbroker. Oh, so, so, then they were sold, yeah. Right, so, so they said, oh, okay. <laughs> um, you, know, being a, you know, nothing wrong with being a stockbroker, but, um, but still. So, so, so I, was, I was then on this um, sort of economics and business path. Um, and then, you know, I was an economics major in college. Um, and then in, in graduate school, um, so I was in this, this joint business economics program that they have at, at Harvard. And um, to be honest, I couldn't, you know, you start off in economics um, and I just couldn't wait to get over to the business school. Because that, you know, I decided, I also applied to MBA programs, um, but somehow because there was only one copy of the test scores, it always seemed to go to the, 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 the PhD program. Um, so I think I got into one MBA program, but by that time, um, you know, I, I was getting some fellowship support and such. And so, you know, it was clear that I was going to go to the PhD program. Um, so I, again, the first year in economics, I, you know, the, the courses were fine and, um, especially the, the, uh, the industrial organization course taught by Dick Caves and Mike Porter, who ended up being two of my advisors. Um, but otherwise I was a little bored. It was a good chance to, you know, sit in on the history of art courses and things like that, that I had missed as an undergrad. Couldn't wait to get to the business school. Then I got to the business school and I was kind of shocked that there was no, you know, people were really smart, but everything was, at that time at least, very ad hoc. They didn't go back to basic principles. It was sort of smart people putting together frameworks for specific, you know, phenomena that they were observing in the business world. And I, you know, I said, whoa, wait a minute, maybe, maybe that economics training was not so terrible after all that you know, it really forces you to, to go back to first principles and think things through. Um, and I, I must admit, I was, I was confused at that point and I decided to take a year off and work for a consulting firm. They're still there, Charles River Associates. Um, and I had a, uh, you know, mostly we were doing litigation support, but I was on a project um, uh, basically with, agricultural cooperatives. We were hired by the, the for-profit 
companies. They were basically agriculture distributors who were competing with agricultural cooperatives. And the, given the basically the fluctuations in the 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 uh, agricultural markets, I mean, there are times it's basically a feast famine kind of business. And during this period, the agricultural cooperatives had ended up with a huge amount of cash, which they were using in ways that the for-profit companies thought was, you know, violated antitrust laws. Um, in, in, in fact, what I realized was that it was, it was basically you had these two, two forms of business organization competing with each other. And they each had relative strengths and weaknesses. It was just fascinating. Um, and, but also in the process, I learned that there was all this data on the chemical industries, that all these chemical products, you know, there are trade journals that publish the number of producers and you could look at entry and exit and there were prices and so on. And so, um, I mean, ultimately this, this alerted me that, that I could collect data. You know, I'm, I've always been primarily an empirical researcher. So I realized that I could collect all this data on competition in, you know, 30, 40, 40 some chemical products over, you know, at least a decade, sometimes multiple decades, um, it would be really interesting. And so at, at first I thought, you know, that I'd write my dissertation on strategic investment because um, you could see, you know, firms expanding their capacity and you know, maybe they're trying to preempt other firms. Maybe they're trying to prevent people from entering. You could see that there was entry. Um, and so, but ultimately what was fascinating to me was you could see there was this very strong learning effect that the, I was observing prices rather than costs, but still the effect was so strong it had to be fundamentally a cost reduction. You can see for all these products as the cumulative output of the industry increased, um, the costs were going down. So this is another time the Boston Consulting Group had, um, you know, they, they, they almost disavow this these days, but, but they have something called the experience curve and um, the experience curve drove, you know, their, the little matrix that still appears in some uh, <laughs> physical text with the, 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 the dogs and the cows and the stars and the question marks. Well, that was the underlying logic there was the experience curve. And that if you, you know, but the assumption which tended to be wrong certainly in the chemical industry and, and a lot of other industries is that if the learning curve is proprietary. So if you invest and you produce a lot, you're going to get your costs down ahead of others. Um, and then you're going to, you know, basically be able to, to, you know, once you make this investment, even if you're losing money, uh, you'll be able to drive others out. Well, that, that can make sense in some contexts, but not others. So, so that was, that was kind of the, and in some ways the strategic investment and the, the learning curve were connected. And I, even some things that I wrote in my dissertation and published afterwards were, were about that connection. But the, the dissertation ended up being about the, the learning curve and its implications. Um, basically documenting the, the learning curve, uh, you know, I could separate it from scale economies, see whether it was a function of time, was it, you know, how is it affected by entry, things like that. Um, uh, and then how did, you know, if you had a steep learning curve, did that really prevent entry or not? In, in this industry, the answer was basically it didn't. Late, later on in my career, um, you know, there was work by, you know, uh, Ashish Arora, Alfonso Gamardella, you know, Fosfuri. They published books on um, 
basically uh, how uh, technology, you know, markets for technology. And I, what I learned was that in, in this particular sector, you couldn't really keep things very proprietary. You might be able to keep your technology proprietary, but somebody else would sell theirs. So, so ultimately what I figured out from this first phase in my career, and this really goes through the, you know, all the things, most of the things I published in the early days, um, is that I was kind of looking at a sector that was, was, was closer on the spectrum to pure competition than to some of the things that are, you know, more interesting in strategy. Um, but anyway, I, so, you know, just going back to my doctoral training. So, 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 so I wrote the dissertation and then, um, you know, ended up, uh, actually ended up teaching, my teaching was in operations management. Um, so I got a job at Stanford in the strategy group, which was kind of fledgling, um, but teaching the operations management course, which is and, and something I definitely would never recommend to, to anybody is, to, you know, to split yourself um, in this way. You know, I've always been curious about different things, as I indicated. Um, so it, and again, at that time, the Japanese, you know, were taking over manufacturing. And, you know, this phenomenon, you know, fascinated me. And there was, there was some really good work at that time on what might be happening. Most of it was conceptual. There really was no empirical work in operations management at that point in time. Um, and I faced the choice of, you know, do I, do, maybe I could try to pioneer this, but that's, that's really tough when the field, you know, mostly these are people in operations who are doing operations research. They viewed things as theoretical. So, so at that point, I decided, well, um, you know, I'm really interested in strategy um, rather than operations primarily. Can anyway, I ask you a question here? So there's, I mean, you talk about being an empiricist, and I do remember a lot of your papers that are, were empirical in your PhD seminar, but I mean, some of your more highly cited papers are not empirical papers, right? So the first mover advantages, the, um, I don't know, where capabilities come from, birth capabilities, um, you know, imitation, why do firms imitate each other? Like these are, I can see that these are likely coming from your empirical work. Right. Right. And so it, it kind of makes sense to me, but it's, can you talk a little bit about that? Right. Well, you know, empirical tension. Right. I mean, it, conceptual papers, you know, in the strategy, people call them theory papers sometimes, you know, they get cited far, far more than empirical papers. I mean, it's, it, it's a little bit of a frustration in that I think a lot of my best work is in the empirical papers, but those papers don't really get cited so much. Um, and so, you know, occasionally I've, I've stepped back and written, you know, what I view as a conceptual paper. I mean, the first one that really took off, which is still my most heavily cited paper, is that paper with first mover advantages. And, um, you know, so, so basically, you know, while I was at Stanford, I was writing all these empirical papers using my chemical data. Um, and they were, I mean, they were fine. Um, and, and, and I think that they added up to a, a pretty good picture of, of things. Although, as I said, it's, it was a sector that was relatively competitive. Um, and then um, I had a colleague in marketing, Dave Montgomery, and I can't, we just, at that time, people were really starting to talk about first mover advantages. And I was, you know, intrigued, you know, what exactly are first mover advantages? And Dave and I were talking, I think, in the lunchroom there. And 
it was clear that he had a very different conception of first mover advantages than, than I did. Um, and so we would, we would talk and we'd argue with each other. And then, um, you know, this, and it, by the way, all my other papers were uh, virtually all of them were single authored. It was kind of a lonely existence. Today, people don't do this. You know, it's, I would, I would not recommend, I would recommend having, you know, if you're starting off, you know, having, you know, maybe one or two single authored papers. So people know, you know, that you can work by yourself and all that, but, um, you know, have, having your entire body of work be single authored um, is, you know, it, you know, in, in my case, it, it worked out fine, but it's, it, it's, it's, it's much more fun, of course, to collaborate. Um, and also, as I learned working with Dave, the, you know, it's just, you get stimulated with far more ideas. So, so we would argue, and then we, there was a, uh, a conference, uh, I think it was at Northwestern. Um, I remember Cynthia Montgomery, I think was the organizer of this, one of the early conferences of the, of, of the, I can't remember if it was SMS or if it was SMJ. It was a special issue of SMJ. So I guess I, we submitted this, it was like a, maybe a 10 page paper at that point and it got accepted and um, we got great feedback and anyway, we continued to argue about it, and um, the paper got better. And um, uh, so, so we really got to think through. I think we were kind of the first mover um, in in writing up these ideas on first mover advantages. And then there there have been, of course, a lot of things that have followed that, including some some of my own papers. Um, so of, of all your research, which paper do you actually like the best, and why? That's hard. Um, I mean, I like asking ask, you your favorite child. I know, but. right? Of your of your children, which which is your favorite? Yeah, you're not going to answer that. <laughs> not. I would never. Yeah, um, especially when I'm recorded. Right. So you know, you could say that your favorite paper is always the last one. Um, you know, they say you're only as good as your last paper in, in this field. Some sometimes. Um, so I would, you know, I guess I like a lot of the papers um, and I mean, if I were to pick some work going forward, um, I don't know, I mean, I mean the, um, well, I, so, so, so just to summarize sort of my research generally, I mean, it's, it really falls into two buckets. I've, there are a lot of specific topics and I might have been better off pursuing, you know, some in greater depth, but I, you know, I tend to get a little bit tired of them. Even the first mover advantage work after a while, I really got, you know, I really didn't want to do more of this, but you're sort of asked to do another one. Um, uh, but, but within, so these two buckets are, are market entry and exit, uh, which in some ways goes back to my early days as an entrepreneur, you, you might say. Yeah. And the other is, is um, sort of dealing with value. You know, in the strategy field, we talk about, uh, you know, creating and capturing value. That's kind of the mantra of strategy, right? You know, the, you know heterogeneity of firms, you know, creating and capturing value. Um, it's always frustrated me, given my training, that we're not more precise about these things. 
and, and given my empirical orientation, you know, I'll read a theoretical paper and I'll say, yeah, right, that's true, but you know, can we, can we calibrate this? Can we figure out what's really most important here? Um, you know, if we, if we actually try to do an empirical study, we might find some things that go beyond where the theory is now. I, I think, you know, that's true, say, kind of in the stakeholder area, for example. Um, so, say, so, so, so on the entry exit side, um, uh, you know, I've got a paper with Tim Folta, who's here. I saw Tim, I see him right now, and Gwen Lee on, on you know, resource redeployment, real options. Um, I actually think that real options is one of the, the most fundamental ideas we have in strategy that's not adequately developed. And so, you know, just in terms of directions for people, it's, I think, because it's, some of it can be a little complicated. Um, technically, it scares people off. Um, uh, but, but I do believe that that's, um, you know, that's a great thing to develop. And, and I actually believe, I've talked to, to, to a number of people, just in teaching these ideas to, you know, MBAs and undergraduates, we don't have good materials for teaching real options, and we need that. Um, and um, so, so, so there's, there's, again, this work on, on entry and exit. Um, but if I were to pick one thing, um, it's, it's this work on value, um, how to assess the creation and capture of value. Um, and there are um, a, a couple of papers I've got in the SMJ uh, with Natarajan Balasubramanian and, and Roberto Garcia Castro um, that actually go back, I mean, this is work I've been working on for maybe two decades. There are only two papers. Uh, it took over a decade to get to get them out, uh, for sure. Um, and you know, some of that is, you know, just because it, it's it was a little difficult to figure these things out. Um, so, 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 so let me just go back. There's in one of the papers called the VCA model. So, so there is a a, a formula from economics that can be used to, de to, to, to estimate the creation of value and to decompose that value. Um, and it's, it's, it's basically the total factor productivity formula and the dual of that formula. And, you know, I got this, um, there is a colleague uh, in economics here at UCLA, um, Arnold, Harburger, Al Harburger, who it used to be that we had to be on committees of uh, PhD committees from other departments. Um, and so Harburger had me on his committees of two or three times and Harburger did at the industry level, this sort of decomposition. You'd see how much, you know, it's basically like a productivity gain and, and how is that gain distributed among, you know, consumers, uh, how is it distributed to, to shareholders, you know, to capital labor, you know, in, in economics, you're not really working at the same level of disaggregation that we do in business. But I said, well, wait a minute, we, we could apply this to, to companies. And it took a while to figure out how to exactly how to do it and where it was relevant. I mean, where, where you could get estimates that, that, that made sense. Um, and so anyway, so, so I've, um, I, I, again, the, the empirical papers don't get that many sites, 
but I do think that's been some of my best work. And what I've decided just recently is to, to make these ideas clearer to a much wider audience that I will, you know, I guess if I say this, I'm, I'm going to be committed to it. I write a book about Southwest Airlines and how Southwest Airlines created value over, you know, four or five decades. Um, I mean, they started in the 1970s, but after deregulation in 1980, they grew in the U.S. And it's a, it's, it's a really nice example because the product, you know, is, a, is an airline seat. It stays pretty stable over time, changes a little bit in quality. And, and you're able to see Southwest with this superior business model um, rolling out, creating value by, through its efficiency, by displacing others who are less efficient. Um, you know, I, I really, the, the, the question here is kind of the counterfactual. If Southwest Airlines didn't exist, you know, how much less value would have been created in the economy? Um, I mean, you obviously can't answer that perfectly, but there are a number of ways to get at that. So there's, there are things that Southwest did that created value and the value, of course, you know, most of it went to, to consumers. Uh, that's normally the, the hard thing that's hard to measure. You know, we, 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 you know, it's easy to measure profits. It's easy to measure stock prices. Um, and so, so people's attention, again, kind of in a stakeholder framework, goes to the things that are easy to measure. And so partly we, we focus on shareholders because you can measure their returns really well, um, either backward looking with, with you know, profits or forward looking with stock prices. But, you know, this approach lets us look at, at the returns to consumers. It lets us look at returns to employees and, and, and managers. I mean, it turns out the Southwest went from being the, the lowest um, wage company in the airline industry to the highest. So the employees have, have captured a fair amount of the, the value here. Um, now, some of the values come from industry things. I mean, other airlines have innovated in Boeing and Airbus and the engine manufacturers. There's been a fair amount of technical, you know, innovation that, you know, helped to create value for the whole industry. So what I've decided to do is to, to try to put, again, the, the whole framework together so that even an undergraduate student could understand where does value come from and where does it go. And that sounds really interesting. I mean, I think your, I, I think of your work is really trying to like clarify the mechanisms, really define things carefully um, to you know, think very carefully about the outcomes. And so that actually sounds really interesting. Sounds like a good culmination. Yeah, because in strategy, we, we, you know, we're, we're like, you know, I often use the, you know, the blind man and the elephant example. I mean, we're kind of feeling certain parts, you know, you, you hear, hear you can, you got the profits or you've got the returns to, to this stakeholder, that stakeholder. I mean, it's all very fragmented. Uh, people do these studies and my hope is to kind of put the whole, the whole thing together. Of course, yeah, no, you know, there's also pollution and global warming and all that sort of thing. And so that's got to be netted out as a negative, but um, just, just to, to, to enable an average citizen, let's say an educated you know, college graduate to sort of understand this big picture of, of you know, creating and capturing value as we say in strategy. Um, I mean, that's what, I, what I've decided recently is that, that that's a goal that is probably worth pursuing. Okay, so in the interest of time, I want to cover two more topics, and then we're going to open it up to people to ask you questions. Oh. 
Sure. So uh, one that I want to ask you about is mentoring. You've played a really big role in a lot of people's careers. Um, you know, I think of you as someone who really pushes people to do what they're interested in. That's not always the case uh, across PhD programs. Um, so I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about your, your views on mentoring. And, you know, Herb Simon seems like he comes in to play in terms right. of what it is you think about mentoring, but, but your own views right. on mentoring. Well, I mean, we're educators. I mean, it's our job. I mean, developing people is what we're supposed to do. I mean, also, you know, publishing, publishing papers and, you know, contributing in that way, but. Um, well, so you're someone who's very generous with your time. I benefited from that. I know other people have benefited from that who aren't even your students. And so uh, I don't know how much you can talk about this, but I would just like to say, you know, thank you for being the type of person who does allow people to have long conversations with you where you're not judgmental, you're constructive, you're trying to help them, you're trying to help them sort of figure out a way to move forward. Um, and so I, I guess part of my reason to bring this up is because I would like to say thank you on behalf of lots of people. Uh, but now that you're you know, you've had so many students. I was wondering if you have advice then for maybe some junior faculty members about how they can maybe approach mentoring or, you know, some things that you've learned that have helped you become the mentor that, that you are. Um, yeah, well, well, thank you, by the way. And thanks. I mean, I've had great students. Um, it's been fun to work with everybody. And, you know, and with some, some of them, I, you know, I've continued to, to work with them. Um, and, you know, I think sort of developing, you know, the people's ideas and, and advancing the research in the field of strategy, which I've been able to see it. I mean, the strategy field is, has developed enormously over the time that I've been, been in it. Um, you know, that's, that's, you know, you know, been gratifying and, 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 and important. Um, so, and, and, and to be honest, um, you know, during the years I was at Stanford, I had no mentor. Um, you know, some of it was, well, you know, don't, don't, um, first of all, don't do what I did in many respects. <laughs> you know, don't, don't split your time between, say, operations and strategy, you know, be more focused. Um, but also, you know, I felt during those early years, not having a mentor was, you know, it was just more stressful, more difficult. Um, I mean, I made a lot of mistakes. Um, I mean, I, I, and so at this point, I guess I feel like I should advise people to avoid the mistakes. Um, I mean, and even my own committee, which was years ago, which was a great committee, um, you know, Porter Caves and, and Mike Spence. I mean, they were phenomenal people from a, an intellectual standpoint and in, in Caves, especially was somebody who I could meet with regularly. I would I'd actually type up memos and meet with him you know, I can't remember how frequently, but he would he would read them and we'd interact and that was wonderful. Um, but but none of them gave me any real career advice for a business school. Um, and so, you know, it was it was not the sort of thing that they did. Um, so, yeah, no, so you and so you do. So all of you yeah. are benefited from your advice. Thank you. Right. And, and, I, and I think that, that we have, you know, in strategy, the, you know, we train people differently these days. I mean, for, from, from what I experienced anyway. I mean, there was a certain, um, 
you know, certainly for my PhD, it was all, you know, developing your own ideas. And, and, and if you have your ideas, you know, we'll give you feedback. And, and all three of my committee members gave me, you know, very useful feedback. Um, but today, I think the norm is to give people more mentoring, career mentoring, and, and the, you know, the STR division and, and SMS, I mean, we, we have lots of ways in which we're able to give people that kind of, of feedback, you know, at conferences and, and career advice that, that did not exist, you know, early in my career. So, so those have all been, been tremendous, you know, opportunities for people. Um, I mean, I did one of them well after I started as a junior faculty member and found it just, you know, just really, really helpful to, you know, <laughs> people will talk about these things that normally don't get discussed. And, you know, it's good if you can have a mentor and, and, and discuss those, you know, as a junior faculty member, I mean, that's, that's really useful. I mean, we're at UCLA, we're, we're trying to assign faculty to senior faculty, junior faculty as mentors formally, which I think is a good idea. Um, and I, I think there are kind of two, two different models that are followed. I mean, one is the one that I was trained in that I still promote, which is sort of the student develops their own ideas and you give them feedback. The other is, because it is an apprenticeship program, the student comes in and immediately gets involved in the faculty member's research and is kind of a research assistant and, you know, perhaps becomes a co-author and then they, they, they continue, you know, after these experiences working directly with a faculty member on the faculty member's research, they evolve to do their own research, which um, is, to be honest, not been the way I've worked, but I've, I've thought about maybe doing that more. Um, I mean, it's not like one approach is right and the other one's wrong. Yeah, no, I mean, UCLA is known for the student comes up with the ideas and the, the faculty encourage them and, and try to help them. So I think there are different approaches across different schools. Um, all right, then last thing I want to ask you about before I open it up to others. Um, so you are currently the SMS Media Innovations co-editor. Um, so why did you take this on and, and kind of what is it that you want to try and do with this? Do you have a, a vision for this? And why should people do blogs and videos? Yeah, so 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 my 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 co-editor, Matthias Wenzel, he's 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 been incredibly active with the blogs. And, and, and the promoting articles and so on. I mean, the SMS, um, you know, differs from AOM STR in that we've got these journals. And so... Um, well, we do have AMJ and MR. But right, 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 right. right. But, but, but in strategy, right, right, AMJ and MR. <laughs> oh yeah, there's some journals. But, you know, but, but, but by the way, I've, I've, I've never... Recorded figured, is on, yeah. yeah. Right, but, but, but they're not strategy. <laughs> you know, they're, they're strategy papers in both of those journals. But um, so, so, so again, what is my objective? I guess broadly, my objective is to try to organize our knowledge to make it more accessible. I think the SMJ alone holds about half of the intellectual capital of the strategy field. And so, so the, I've been doing things that are not at all visible and maybe never will be visible. Um, but I've, I, what I want, I mean, now that we've got ways to organize things on the web, we can, we can even do interviews like, like this or, or relatively easy with Zoom. We, we have new ways to create and, and tie together information. So 
Um, I mean, ultimately, what I would hope to get to achieve um, in media innovations is for people to be going, let's say a, a doctoral student is interested in a particular topic, to go in and then kind of do a search that would take you to all of the SMS you know, journal articles that deal with that and link to um, you know, video abstracts we may have. Um, we may also do more sort of interview types of things relating to articles. So you can actually see the people who are writing these articles, which I think helps make things come alive. You know, you, 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 once we get back to having real conferences again, you can understand who these people are and go up to them in the hallway and maybe have a conversation. Um, so, so do you see it as an academic audience or broader than academic audience? Well, both. So, so the other thing about the SMS is that um, part of its objective is outreach to what we call Bs and Cs, business people and consultants. Um, and so that's, that's kind of been de-emphasized over the years and we're trying to bring that back. And you know, I think that media innovations may be able to play some role in doing that. Um, and again, what, what appeals to Bs and Cs probably also would appeal to MBA students. So again, with the video abstracts, which um, I, I think are, are great, but, but they can appeal to different audiences. And so I'd like to focus them more so we have you know, video abstracts that are really designed for, say, use in a classroom, you know, a short, or, 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 or more specifically, you could put it in your syllabus. So yeah. I mean, it seems like there could be multiple versions then, right? Because right. a doctoral student would you, you probably got it. like... This, this is what, you know, trying to figure out what is the best route forward for these new opportunities that we have. Um, I mean, I, I've been trying to think that through. Um, and I don't, you know, I, I've been reluctant to, to actually, you know, bring these things forth because once they start you you know i don't want to have to say no no that wasn't the right way to do it let's let's try something different um but i, I think there's a role in str um i mean I, again the leadership there has just been phenomenal in in um you know creating all this new media during the past year um and and i, I assume much of this is going to continue forward and you know, certainly SMS shouldn't just reproduce the sorts of things that you're doing. Um, but I do think that because we have all these strategy journals and because we've got this mandate for B and C outreach, that there are ways that we can differentiate from what SDR is doing so that all told we have a, you know, a much richer intellectual environment here. Yeah, no, it sounds great. Okay, so um, I promised that I would allow people to ask questions. And so I want to stop, even though I could ask you several other things, I'm going to stop here. And I am going to um, look at the chat. So I would like to call people if you have questions uh, to actually ask them yourselves. So the first one that I see here is a question from looks like Nicholas um, P. I don't see the full name here. A uh, question for Marvin sent directly to me. So, um, Nicholas, can you uh, ask your question about uh, empirical papers not getting cited? Nicholas, are you here? Yeah, thank you. Uh, hi, Marvin. Hi, I'm, Nicholas. I'm hoping you might elaborate a bit on something you've said a couple times, which is that empirical papers don't get cited as much, especially the implications of that for things like credibility and replication and, and um, testing theory that's published with, with subsequent papers. 
Right. So, so there's a whole issue of replication, which I mean, the SMJ is taking the leadership there in enabling people to, to do, you know, replication type studies, which otherwise, you know, can be hard to publish. Um, you know, I, I, I think it's just the nature of, 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 of empirical work that it's going to be narrower than the conceptual or theoretical work. So, so I think the theoretical work gets cited more because it's, you know, it, it, it just, it, it, because of its breadth, um, you know, it, it, it just, just fits in, you're writing some introduction to a paper and, and it's gonna be typically the, sort of those theoretical or, or conceptual papers that, you, that fit so nicely um, in, in the introductory part of, a, of any article. And then the empirical work would fit and be cited, but you'd have to be doing a, a, an empirical study that's that's you know in the same domain. So um, you know, I, I, I think that's it's it's just sort of the nature of the beast here that that empirical work is going to be cited going to be cited less. Um, and well, I will say though, some of your papers that are the conceptual papers, I mean, you do a really good job of explaining you know, how we can think about first mover advantages or imitation. I mean, there's a reason that these are highly cited papers. I think the paper itself is really good in terms of making sense of, you know, conflicting tensions and sort of how we think about this across some, some different literatures. So your papers in particular, like I understand why some of these, you know, are very highly cited, the conceptual one. Right. And, and, and I do think that if you're, if you're an empirical researcher, it forces you to think things through in a way that a, more of a purely theoretical researcher might not. I mean, I, I've had conversations recently with some of the more theoretical researchers where I've raised some issues that, you know, to me, um, you know, and even, you know, as I described, say the, you know, the story about Southwest Airlines, you know, there, there are a lot, you know, what, what's great about Southwest is it's actually forced me to think through, you know, what's, what is the broad perspective here? I mean, it, it, in fact, it took me a little while, you know, if you, if you read the papers in the SMJ, they don't say anything about this value coming from, you know, the, the airframe, airplane manufacturers and the engine manufacturers. It's, you know, but, but I realized, hey, wait a minute, you know, that's really an important part of the story. And, and to really understand this, we need to figure out of, of all the value generated by the airline industry, how much of it's coming from those kinds of suppliers. Um, and... Yeah. Okay, so I have been interrupted by um, people who do these yeah. things better. So Zhao uh, has asked if we could please take a picture. Um, Zhao, do you, are you the person who actually captures that? Uh, yes, so everyone, if you're comfortable turning on your camera, we're gonna take a picture um, to capture the moment. So one, two, three, excellent. Thank you. Back Thank you, you. and I'm sorry for not doing that at the end of my questions. Okay, so um, Marvin, let's see. Uh, Samina, do you want to ask a question uh, about pushing Marvin, for, Marvin further on some topics? Sure. Marvin, you mentioned real options as an area, you know, that we could really use more work on. I was just wondering what other topics or research questions you would want junior faculty to address that you think there's really room for contribution? Wow. So, <laughs> I mean, I mean, real options, I mean, really what real options is, is understanding uncertainty. 
And so, so I, I think the, the real options term scares people off, but when you frame it in terms of uncertainty, what are the implications of uncertainty? Um, that's, you know, yeah, I mean, that's clearly really important. Um, you know, other areas, um, well, it's, you know, I, I have a piece that came out recently in the strategic management review um, about competitive advantage, um, where, you know, you know, I was Mike Porter's student and, 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 you know, I, I, you know, I think competitive advantage was a great thing, um, you know, 40 years ago, uh, but we moved beyond it because there are just many different ways to define competitive advantage, um, and to measure competitive advantage. And so what I argue in that little essay is that, you know, it, it's fine to use the term competitive advantage as long as we're not referring to anything specific. But if you want to be specific, you need to say exactly what you mean. Um, so it's not really a research concept. It's kind of something, you know, we can, it's, it's, it's hard to, to talk about strategy without using the term competitive advantage. But, but if you say a firm A has competitive advantage of firm B, you need to say, you know, what are you, how are you defining it? in this particular context, which leads to the, the opportunity I think we have in the field to develop better measures. So, so as I see it, you know, moving beyond competitive advantage says, okay, we've, we've, we've made tremendous progress in the strategy field, um, kind of relating to competitive advantage and, and understanding a lot of the, the details of, of why it's problematic. Um, I, I think that's actually reflects a lot of you know great things that we've figured out over the past 40 years and so now you know we've th there is still potential to come up with with better measures of you know, if you want to call it competitive advantage but um i mean i i won't go into to detail but but there are you know we've got um you know, I mentioned the sort of the VCA model, which is a way of kind of measuring value. You know, we've got obviously forward-looking measures of the shareholder type based on stocks, you know, backward-looking measures. We've got various kinds of stakeholder returns. We've got, um, it was called, you know, I just read Rebecca Henderson's book, you know, Shared Value, which I think started with Porter, which any economists would say, well, this is all about externalities. You know, maybe we should get better in strategy about measuring, you know, these externalities, which are, you know, sometimes positive, very often negative, you know, again, sort of a more holistic picture of performance of companies. Um, I don't know, maybe, I mean, I, I could probably go on, but, um, yeah, those oh, are, thank you. That, those are some great ideas. I think we have a lot of PhD students uh, who are on listening to these and also junior faculty. And so I think it's great to hear some of your um, ideas on this. All right, Christian Bush, do you want to ask, ask your question? Yes, hello. Hi. Uh, thank you for the uh, great conversation. Uh, it's a rather open-ended question, which is that, you know, given how open-minded you seem to have navigated life, I was wondering, is there something that really surprised you on this academic journey? And, and maybe some assumptions that you've seen people tend to have when they start out in the field and then they are completely wrong and they could have saved a lot of life and, and time and energy to have revised that early on? Boy, you know, have there been, have there been surprises? Um, you know, to answer no would, would imply that I've anticipated things, but that's certainly not the case. Um, I don't know. I, I mean, I, 
Well, advice for junior faculty. I, I mean, you know, things that you would do differently, I think is, is part of that as well. Advice for junior faculty is a useful thing. Yeah, the, um, well, I mean, one thing is, is to avoid pursuing a topic that is just currently a hot topic. Um, I mean, I, I've seen people do that and then, then things change and, you know, you're sort of, you know, left, you know, aground, stranded. Um, so, so I wouldn't do that. I, in, in general, I, I, you know, as I said, I've been, I've just been curious about a lot of phenomena relating to business. Um, and so I would, um, you know, I, I would just say pursue things that, that are, that are, that are interesting to you. I mean, some of them can be motivated by, by current issues, but don't get, get, um, too, you know, too carried away by, by that. Um, I don't know. I, I mean, looking back over this broad sweep of the evolution of the strategy field, it is quite remarkable how it's, how it is developed over the years. Um, you know, it's, um, you know, I, I, you know, on the whole, it's, it's become, you know, it's gotten a lot better. I mean, it's, it's basically an, a place where you can explore all kinds of phenomena. Some people think it's too, you know, it's too broad. Um, but I'm, you know, I guess I'm of the view that let's let, uh, you know, all these different flowers bloom and, and see what emerges. And I, I do think we've learned a lot about about competitive heterogeneity. Um, you know, we've learned a lot about, well, is, is, you know, about resources and capabilities. J. Mark Barney was, you know, basically economists would say imperfect factor markets. I mean, all these, you know, factor markets don't operate in the perfect way that economists, you know, are originally trained to, to, to view. And, and we've figured out a lot of, 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 of that. Um, you know, and, and, and imperfect product markets. This is where Mike Porter began, you know, the industry, you know, five forces and all that. So, so we've, um, you know, I, I guess I would not have, I, I would have been surprised back when I was a graduate student that we could, um, I think today, you know, at least from the standpoint of an economist say, wow, the strategy field has really fleshed out a lot of these market imperfections on the product side and the factor market side. And, and the rest is kind of sort of details. Maybe that's, I'm not sure that really answers your question, but. Um, oh, that's uh, useful. All right, Louise um, wants to redirect this a little bit to teaching. Louise, do you want to ask, ask your question? Uh, yes, so thank you very much for this conversation, Marvin. It's been really interesting. A lot of the things you've talked about relate to teaching. And I thought the example as you were talking about with your book on Southwest Airlines sounds great. Um, but I'm wondering if, based on your own experiences, maybe you have some advice also for junior faculty or uh, late stage PhD students who are starting to think about teaching. What are some of the things that, that you would advise them? Yeah, so, well, I mean, thinking back, um, you know, when, when you first start as a faculty member, I mean, teaching is really hard. It's really time consuming. And, it's, and unless you're really good at it, your early experiences are not going to be uh, all that satisfying. You're going to, it's going to be frustrating. So um, I, I think a challenge to anybody early on in their career, except for, I mean, there are people who just come out the gate and are great teachers and, and get even better, um, is, is to recognize that you're going to have to spend this time on teaching, you know, deal with it. Um, 
know, depending on where, where you are, teaching may be more or less important. I mean, the, the level to which your teaching has to get to, say, get tenure, if that's your objective, uh, can vary. Um, you know, if, if you have, if, if the teaching is, is uh, very challenging, there is a temptation to spend more time on it than maybe you should at the expense of research. So, so, so I, I think for a, for a junior faculty, um, it's, it is a, a real issue to think about. I mean, here again, and maybe if you have a mentor in your institution to talk about this, to try to keep perspective on it. Um, you know, I mean, ultimately, as I said, I mean, we're educators and we're, you know, hopefully having some impact in our research, in our teaching of both doctoral students and, you know, MBA and undergraduate students. So, um, you know, you, you want to kind of diversify your efforts in terms of changing the way people think. But um, yeah, I, I think, I mean, I, early on, it's, it's, it's uh, I, I know for me teaching, well, again, I was teaching operations, which was, you know, my own personal story. <laughs> um, and, uh, but it wasn't, it, you know, it, it took a while to, to, to figure out how to teach, um, you know, reasonably well. Um, do you use your research in your classes? Sometimes. Classes. Yeah. I mean, I just, um, so I just published a paper with Ron Adner on disruption through compliments. I mean, disruption, again, fits on this market entry side. Um, and I just, you know, I, I, I'm teaching a course now with a practitioner on corporate renewal. Um, I mean, one nice thing is that he does a lot of, I, I, I give the macro side and he, he, he actually gives the micro side, but I talked about, um, you know, disruptive innovation and, you know, Christensen's ideas and then my ideas and then posted optionally the, this article on disruption through compliments. And a number of students have, have read it and have actually come back to me with questions and comments. I mean, it was, um, it was quite a surprise to me that at least for a few students, I mean, they were engaged at that level where they, they really were, were interested. So, so yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I think most, you know, throwing in a little bit of your own research is, is usually a good thing. Yeah, I would also offer that Marvin has a website where he makes available some of his syllabi and some of his um, materials. And so if you're someone who's new into this, um, you know, at STR, we have a bunch of syllabi that are uploaded, but Marvin, you actually have much more in terms of providing some of the content that you use. So, right. I'm not sure I've updated that recently, but maybe you're telling me, maybe I will. <laughs> no, no. I, I mean, it's, you know, people can update themselves. It's a basic, right? You're not going to take what someone does exactly, and hopefully. <laughs> right, right. But another, I mean, on this issue of syllabi and all, again, this question of organizing our knowledge and strategy. Um, I mean, we do have some sites where the syllabi are posted, but um, I mean, again, I'm trying to think of how, to, to be perfectly frank, um, efforts like this one that we're engaged in today are, are generating a, a huge amount of stuff. Um, it's kind of like outer space where the, you know, <laughs> the junk is accumulating. I don't want to call it that, <laughs> but, but um, we, you know, it, we, we need to think through how to make it accessible to people. Um, so, no, so, absolutely. We, so, so, so recently, you know, we've created a, this tremendous resource, but, um, and, and, and I think that, that the, the STR site is actually reasonably good at organizing it. Um, but again, my objective is to maybe come up with some broader way that we can access things by topic. 
Um, and, and no, I completely agree with you. As, as we get more and more content, there needs to be some kind of organizational system where the content is just there and people will chance upon it. So right. we the, like, like, do you remember, you know, those of us who are old enough remember Yahoo. Remember, and, and, and Yahoo was a website that was curated that actually organized the web. Um, and we could have, you know, a Yahoo for strategy. Yeah, different content. I mean, at this point, we also are, there's a lot of people who are doing really interesting Meet the Scholar kinds of things across different channels and platforms. And so just even thinking about kind of how we come together and, and sort of make it accessible. All right. All right. So, so if anybody, if there are any volunteers, <laughs> you know, I, at some point I'll probably be looking for somebody who to create a Yahoo for strategy or whatever you want to call it. So. Okay, there you go. An opportunity for SMS. Contact Marvin later. <laughs> really interesting. Yeah, it may be another idea that will never emerge. <laughs> <laughs> well, a bunch of ideas you've heard here first. Um, excellent opportunities. All right, uh, we have a question from um, Alexandra. Sorry if I'm mispronouncing your name. Would you like to ask me? Where we were... Hello, uh, yes. uh, my name is Alex. I'm from West Virginia. As uh, Dr. Lieberman uh, uh, just touched the uh, phenomenon of uncertainty, which is really central to entrepreneurship. Uh, I have a question. Maybe you can suggest some hints how we can measure actually uh, uncertainty because it's important for the strategy and the entrepreneurship. And as I understand, there is like a modern view on it. So there is uncertainty which can mitigate it by learning and there is a totally ambiguous uncertainty. So, or maybe there is another better ways of mm, uh, measuring this phenomena. Right, so measuring, yeah, I mean, that, that's a really big question. Um, <laughs> you know, I, you know, it, you know so, so it just just in, in, in entrepreneurship, um, I mean, one thing that has become very popular in recent years is doing ex little experiments, um, you know, A-B testing, things like that. Um, you know, so, so there's, I, I, I think there are now, you know, more tools and approaches to deal with, with uncertainty. Um, you know, the... Um, I mean, I, again, this, this, this paper of mine with, with uh, Tim Fulton, Gwen Lee is about, you know, doing, doing experiments, um, you know, under uncertainty. And, and the idea is that if the experiment fails, you redeploy resources. Um, I mean, in, in, in my view, a company like Amazon is just masterful at that. And most big companies have a lot of trouble dealing with uncertainty. Um, but some, like Amazon, are, are great at it. Um, so, I mean, again, sort of measuring uncertainty, you know, probability distributions and that sort of thing. I mean, there are ways to, to try to, 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 uh, characterize that, but I, I don't know, I, I guess I view uncertainty as, as just this broad, you know, overriding set of issues that we don't really deal with effectively enough in strategy. I mean, it, and it, again, it, it takes place at multiple levels. I mean, it could be as narrow as A-B testing. It could be as broad as resource redeployment. Um, it's just, um, we, we, we tend not to apply, you know, this uncertainty frame, which again, I think often fits within real options. But, but other people are more, I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a dilettante in, in real options. People like Tim Folta and others are the, are the experts here. 
Okay. Yeah, Asim has a question, but this could take a while. So he'll, let's see how we, Asim, ask your question in a way that sort of wouldn't take half an hour. Okay. Um, <laughs> you know me too well. Um, so Marvin, I mean, one of the curses of knowing you better is that I also know some of the stories that you haven't told, right? And so, um, so I, and since we're talking about entrepreneurship, I was thinking about your experience, you know, taking time off to be the CEO of a startup. And so let's put it this way. What do you think, what, what, what were the things you learned from that experience that we haven't studied in strategy and entrepreneurship that you think we should be paying more attention to? Wow. So, um, and feel free to add background to this, by the way. Yeah. So, so as, as Asim knows, I, this is over a decade ago now, um, I took off what was supposed to be about a year um, to be CEO of a little startup company. Um, oh, just to give a little background. Um, so, so, so my, my wife uh, is, works in, in biotech uh, and, and while well, she was at Amgen, uh, she had one of her top scientists left to start his own little company. It was basically a service company. Um, he's a brilliant scientist, but uh, by his own admission, a terrible manager. Um, and so he started this firm uh, after a few years, got into trouble. Um, and I helped him sell the company. And then the buyer realized that this just wasn't working. So he got it back. And at this point, I said to the, the founder, um, you know, it's, it's about a 25 person, $5 million you know, company, um, you know, look, founder, you know, I could, I could help you um, to tune up your, your firm. You know, every, we agree you're not a very good, you know, you've never been trained as a manager. You don't really, you admit not to having these managerial skills. You know, there are things that I could do to put the firm on a, on a growth path, you know, fix various problems. Um, and he agreed. Um, so, but I was, you know, this is pretty delusional of me um, because I think everybody knows that founders don't change, <laughs> you know, and, and, and my delusion that, that I could somehow help this founder change um, was, was an interesting hope. You know, it was, I, I've always been an optimist and um, anyway, so I started and, and very quickly, you know, made some changes um, that, that were major improvements, um, except they, they did change what the founder was doing. So he had kind of mixed views on this. And we, we went on for several months. Um, and I, you know, I actually met with, you know, I had lunch with somebody every day and had this plan. Um, and, and, and it was a great opportunity to, to see all the functional areas of the firm. I mean, it, it, was, it was a chance to, to really think through an entire enterprise. It was small enough to, to, to get my hands around the whole thing. Um, I mean, it had some really interesting, you know, challenges and opportunities. Um, but um, anyway, so, 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 I, so I put together a, a, a basically the plan of what to do and presented it to the founder um, who told me he just wanted to go back to doing what he did before. So anyway, I, I left. Um, I mean, he, he could do fine without me. Unfortunately, some other people left, which was a little more problematic. But um, anyway, he's, I, I just had contact with him again 
um, he, he, we didn't really, I, you know, he'd been a friend, but we didn't really talk to each other very much uh, for a while. But he's, he's now uh, brought in an outside CEO. He's built his company up. It's well over 100 employees now. Um, so I think, I think in the end, he implemented a lot of the things that I had told him about. But of course, at the time, you know, it's, again, it's, it's, I mean, one, one lesson is founders, you know, there are very specific issues relating to founders, but again, teaching this, this course on turnarounds, um, which is really a course more broadly on strategy implementation. Um, a lot of what I learned in this experience has turned out to be very helpful. Um, so, so I would, although it was a, you know, a, in some ways a difficult experience at the time, uh, certainly the most dramatic several months of my life in many respects. Um, but, but, you know, in retrospect, I've gotten uh, a, a much better sense of what goes on inside companies, which is, I guess, in general, in strategy, if I were to, to express a regret, um, you know, I came in as an economist really looking very much outside the firm and have always wanted to get inside of companies to a greater degree. And, uh, in my research, I would have to admit I've never really succeeded. But in this one experience, I, I did get inside the firm and um, did have the chance to think through all you know the strategy, um, all the the you know the, the functional areas of the firm, a lot of people issues. Um, so so it was you know I don't regret doing it, and and I think ultimately the founder even benefited. No, that, all right. So I have to ask some fun questions. Um, and so, uh, you know, in the last couple of minutes that we have left here, I'm going to do that. So Samina started these fun questions. And so I defer to Samina with these. So Samina can add anything that I don't ask. So I'm allergic to chocolate. I don't actually like this question, but what is your favorite dessert, Marvin? <laughs> My favorite dessert. So I like, I do like desserts, um, but um, in, in the interest of, of healthy eating. Oh, no, 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 please. Well, let's, you know, but, but we're, you know. We're being honest here. We've been yeah. very honest throughout the entire time. Why right. change now? Right. But I like, um, but, but I, you know, here I am in, in, you know, California, the land of fruits and nuts. Uh, so. Oh, good. You're going to work this in. Oh, excellent. Okay. Heather and I have, have, have talked about the fact that, that um, you know, Heather is Heather Berry, and I live in Ventura County, um, which is, in some people consider this the strawberry capital of the world. California grows 70% of the nation's strawberries, and 30% of those are in Ventura County, right, right down there. Um, they're really quite delicious, the strawberries, the, the local ones. I don't know if they're so good when they get exported to the rest of the country. But um, oh, they're pretty good. They're so pretty if good. I were to pick a favorite dessert, um, let's call it berries, let's call it strawberries. And, and I would even say that, you know, you're going to be the, the, the chair next year. And if the conference is held in, you know, in person, on site, that after, after that business meeting, that we should have big bowls of STR berries um, to honor your tenure. Yeah, so broadly defined berries, right? Because in the hotels that capture you, like, I don't think that's real fruit. I don't know what some of that yeah. stuff is. 
right. I will, I, I'll, I'll have to see if there's some way to bring berries from Ventura County. Uh, I don't even know where the, I can't remember where the meeting is supposed to be next year, but. Um, Actually, we, it's Seattle. Yeah. Oh, it's Seattle. Okay. So it's closer to you. So that's easier for right. you. Yeah. Right. So okay, I'm going to hold you to this. I have so many things that I've written down. So the Ventura strawberries I'm writing down right now. Right. Excellent. It'll be a fantastic in-person conference then with some excellent right. delicacies. Right. Right. Okay, well, I'm, I'm glad you didn't say chocolate, so I'll, I'll take your answer. Yeah, Seattle, Seattle is great. I mean, I don't, you know. Yeah, yeah, Seattle's fantastic. I mean, yeah, to be honest yeah. with you, anywhere that we were in person, <laughs> there's a fantastic side to it at this point, because um, I think we're all quite tired of Zoom. Um, okay, so do you have hobbies? Hobbies? Yeah. Um, yeah, of sorts. Um, I, you know, I must say that when, when I... What I, you know, just, you know, I, I like, I'm really interested in business. I mean, I, I just love reading the Wall Street Journal and the, you know, I just love reading about companies and competition. I mean, some people watch- Okay, I'm going to push you a little further on this. So something outside of work that you enjoy doing. Well, this, you know, this, I, this is out, it's related to work. No, 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 no. Reading the Wall Street Journal, that is not me. <laughs> Uh, you know, and they're, they're business books and things. I don't know. Anyway, but <laughs> um, this is like that question of what's your favorite paper? I'm not going to answer that. <laughs> okay. So that's fine. Um, are you, are you trying, you know, um, are, are you heading towards architecture or something like that? Oh, well, you could, do, you could do architect. That would be good. Yeah. You're or, or what do you, I mean, we've chatted. Which, yeah. Which yeah but you, I mean, I, I wasn't sure if you had some other, like, I mean, I have some hobbies that people know. Nothing. Well, yeah. I mean, I like, so, so here, I, you know, I'm in California and you know, the, the great thing about being here is that it's, you know, it's a beautiful state and you know, we've got a tremendous variety between the mountains and the deserts and the, and the, the seashore. Um, they're, they're, Phenomenal places to visit. You know, you can, within the state, you have all this, all these different places. You can, you know, hiking, biking. You know, I, you know, I don't do quite as much mountain biking as I used to, but I mean, this where I live is a great place for that. Um, that counts. So, That's, so those just, are some just, good hobbies. Yeah. Right. Just, just getting. You know, if if you and you can do it year round here, which is one of the great things. Yeah, yeah. No, you can drive up to ski. You know. Mammoth Mountain, and then like go to Santa Barbara. <laughs> right, right. Same the joke again. used to be, you know, in LA you could go skiing and and surfing on the same day. Yeah, no, you, you actually you can sometimes. So yeah, gotta watch out for the fires. But yeah, other than that, um, Samina, do you want to add any questions that you like to ask? I, I would love to ask one, which is Marvin. If you could have dinner and conversation with one deceased individual, who would it be, and why? Well, obviously, from what I've said, it would be Herbert Simon. Okay, other than uh, Herbert Simon. Well, I, you know, let me, I mean, Simon, I, I, I do. It would be Herman Simon. <laughs> well, I mean, I read, I read, I never had an adult conversation with him in the in sense that um, it, it was, I mean, I, I would love to be able to see, yeah, yeah. You know, actually before he died, I, I would, at first I would go see him and then I, I would be intimidated. I mean, once I understood who he really was and the work he, I felt like I really should understand his work to go in to see him, you know, and have a really good conversation. And eventually I, I decided, well, it's, you know, I should do that. And then he passed away. Um, but 
you know, otherwise, um, who would I, who would I want? No, he, he sounds like a huge influence in your life. I completely understand. Well, that. yeah, I mean, it wasn't, it was, it, I mean, he, he I mean, he, 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 anyway, let, let, let me just leave it at that. I'll honor Herbert Simon's memory, which, you know, certainly, um, you know, has influenced us in the field. And, um, you know, I mean, after he got his Nobel Prize, I said, well, wait, you know, <laughs> I really. I hummed to this man. Yeah. <laughs> I, I ought to be better prepared, you know, for, for any conversation. Um, anyway, yeah. Um, but I'll, I'll have to think about any. Um, well, obviously, I, I can't have a conversation with a deceased person, except unless they put together, you know, eventually they'll have, they'll, they'll have these mind clones. I mean, the people working on this, um, you know, basically cloning, cloning your mind so you could have a conversation with a deceased person. In fact, they've done it with Holocaust survivors. Um, they interviewed Holocaust survivors. There's a whole AI system that lets you ask questions of Holocaust survivors who, who have passed away. Um, it's, it's, it's been on 60 minutes. It's just, it's just pretty remarkable. Um, so anyway, may, maybe at some point we'll be able to, to, to do this sort of thing. Maybe uh, our next meet this guy. Yeah. Okay, so I want to thank everyone for attending today. Um, and I especially want to thank Marvin. So Marvin, I've learned some new things about you. I'm pretty confident other people have learned some new things about you. So I feel like this was a very successful Meet the Scholar. So thank you very much for your time. And thank you to everyone else for attending. Okay, and thank you for having me. It's been a okay. pleasure. That's been our pleasure too. Bye.